I'd like to thank Motley Fool for sponsoring this episode. I've said before on ads that looking after yourself financially gets harder and harder with the cost of everything going up. Being a tight Scotsman, I use every method I can possible to save a little here or make the most of what I have there. Motley Fool is one way that you can definitely look to maximise your income from investments. The age of stock picking is here with towering inflation and elevating interest rates. Sticking your money in a passive market just isn't going to get you what it used to but it doesn't mean you have to abandon the market there are still ways to invest for the future you just need to know where to look which is where the motley fool comes in the motley fool stock advisor service highlights two stocks each and every month for members to add to their portfolios and it literally is paid to listen to them historically their average stock recommendation is up over 400 percent as of april 10th 2023 and listeners of That UFO Podcast can now access Motley Fool Stock Advisor for just $89 for their first year, a full $110 off the list price. What are you waiting for? Visit fool.com forward slash that UFO. That's F-O-O-L dot com slash T-H-A-T-U-F-O to start your investing journey today. $110 discount off of $199 per year list price. Membership will renew annually at the then current list price. This is Chris Bledsoe and I'm listening to That UFO Podcast, hosted by my good friend Andy. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and I am joined on this show with an author, historian, researcher, UAP Media UK member and of course friend. Welcome back to the podcast, Graham Rendell. Graham, how are we? Hello Andy, thanks for the invitation. It's great to be back. It's lovely to have you on. I'm jealous of you sitting outside. For any YouTube viewers, you'll see Graham is in the garden with uh, breathable air. I'm back in the shed, but I do have a fan, which you shouldn't be able to hear, but I did invest in a fan, which is behind the curtain. So that it's a little a cur- guy in the background going, Andy, Andy, Andy. Yeah, my, my, one, my one and only fan, yeah. <laughs> uh, my only fan. Um, but yeah, no, it's, uh, it's there. So I, I got a lot of recommendations after the last one. It's currently, according to the fan, which has a little digital screen, 27 degrees in the shed. Mm. Um and that's uh, that is just pure heat, folks. So here we are. And listen, speaking of heat, the UFO topic, Graham, is hotting up. Oh, yes. um, spurious link and all that. Um, very interesting times right now for the UFO conversation. And there's not many better people to speak to. Well, there's loads, but none of them are available, Graham, like I said, uh, about the history of the UFO topic. And I want to chat to you, Graham, as a historian, a researcher, an author, uh, about a crash that happened in 1933. Now, this was a, a claim that came up from David Grush, the whistleblower, in his recent interview with Ross Coulter on News Nation. Um, for some, you might not know this isn't a new claim. For others who may be aware of this, this wasn't brand new information, but it was information fed to the masses for the first time for, for many. Um, so this 1933 crash came to light when Ross Coulter asked him, you know, David Grush about his, his cover-up going back 90 years rather than mm. the usual 75 to 80, Graham. Um, and he mentioned that this crash happened in Italy, 1933. So what was your your thoughts on hearing that at first? Well, that's just like, come on, so sorry about the motorbike in the background. This is my, um, where the village I live in is a bit of a mecca for bikers. Um, so we go back to actually to April 11th, 1933, and this is when this uh, crash is supposed to have happened. Um, and some a flying saucer, or, or call it what you will, was supposed to have either crashed or landed. It's a bit sort of vague. Uh, near a, a town called Magenta, which is just to the west of Milan. It's actually now on the on the western outskirts of Milan uh, in northern Italy. Um, and this is obviously 14 years before Roswell and, and, and Kenneth Arnold. So it's it's quite early on. Um, now there had been allegedly some you know some reports of various well they called them mystery aircraft back then, um, and they were seen all over Europe. It was a uh, kind of modern, it was, a, it, it was the Foo Fighters of the time, it was the ghost rockets of the time, it was the flying saucers of the time, uh, and that's what they called them. Um, now, this particular case, 
uh, is supposed to have generated um, reports uh, or the setting up of a, um, a special unit called Gapanetto RS33. Uh, RS is uh, Italian for uh, is uh, Researcher Speciali or Special Researchers, um, and 33 was a, meant, supposed to mean the year. Um, and this special group was supposed to have investigated, um, been set up by Benito Mussolini to you know to study what this was, what this particular crash was, and and what was found there. Um, and whatever was discovered, again, as this legend has, has basically grown up around, uh, suggests that whatever this vehicle was, it was taken to the, the Saia Marchetti um, aircraft factory in a place called Viaggiati, which is um, about 20 kilometers north of uh, Magenta. So again, it's on the outskirts of Milan. Um, now, again, as I keep saying, as the legend says, because a lot of this hasn't really been verified. Um, according to this legend, Mussolini reckoned that this flying saucer, call it what you will, was either French or British or, or a German, um, you know, secret airplane or, or some kind of secret weapon. Because um, all, all the European powers were rearming at this particular time. You know, the Hitler had just um, sort of, the, the, the Germans were just, um, the, you know, the Hitler had just come to power. So they were starting to rearm in Germany. Italy was quite a big air force at that time. They had probably arguably the best air force in Europe at that particular time. Um, so it, it's, it's, you know, it's strange to think that um, you know, Mussolini thought, oh, one of the other countries have got something up, um, you know, so one up on us, if you like. But anyway, this RS-33 cabinet, uh, that's the English for it, um, you know, had allegedly been sort of set up to, to investigate this particular uh, flying saucer crash. So that that's the legend. There are other stories from the time, uh, but we can go well, into that let as me, well, Yeah, like. let me ask you, because you mentioned rather flippantly, Graham, that uh, it was a crashed flying saucer or whatever <laughs> that may have been. Now, we're, we're going back to, like you say, before Kenneth Arnold, before mm. the, the popularisation of the term flying saucer. Was there much report of what the shape was? Because all that was said uh, by David Grush from what he has seen in documentation is a partially intact vehicle or craft. Yeah. Was it a case of it was something or do, do we know? As far as I'm aware, Andy, it's pretty vague. And um, a lot of, from what I can recall, the actual descriptions are, some of it are mystery aircraft in terms of the translation. So it's not entirely clear. Um, you know, I mean, in, in the, the, the guy who, um, or two of the Italian researchers who have been sort of all over this story, feel like they're the people who are, are pushing it and promoting it. Uh, one's called Lissoni, and the other one uh, is called Pinotti. And I think uh, Pinotti wrote an article called um, The UFO Files of Mussolini. Um, and it's available on, on the internet. You can see it through the Black Vault uh, website and some other places as well. And according to that, it, in quotes, it just says unconventional flying vehicle. Um, and I think the Italian around that, Velivoli is, is an Italian for, um, you know, that's one of the words they use in connection with this. So if you see that particular term, uh, then, you, you know, you're getting on the right track. But that just means like mystery aircraft, I think. So... It's not entirely clear what it was, um, and there are various stories around it. You know, people think it was a mystery aircraft. There's other bits of this legend that um, various people who were at the head of the air force or various other people, high-ranking officials, reckon it was extraterrestrial. So you have to sort of, you know, it depends on how you come down on this subject, what you believe, um, because I think a lot of it is still kind of up in the air in terms of, you know, how how kind of. You know, how much verification there's been of it. For, for anyone who doesn't know Graham or has, has read his books yet, and you will by the end of this, you'll know him better, and I've got the links <laughs> for all his stuff in the description as well. He's, he's quite the aviation buff. He doesn't only write about UFOs, but uh, and I've, I've had several a car ride with Graham, and uh, you're very keen on, on uh, all kind of different mechanical wonders, including trains, as I found out. But in terms of aviation, Mm. What was in the skies at the time? You're looking here, we're between wars. You've had mm. the, the Great War, the First World War was was since passed, but people still feeling the effects. And we're we're approaching the Second World War. Well, we're, what, eight, eight years off of it? Seven, eight, yeah, not too far off of that. Yeah, 39, God, yeah. Um, so we're not too far from that. So it's still a tense time in terms of world relations. What type of technology was around in the air that maybe for the time would be considered fantastic or you know biplanes that, yeah. that was, they were still using biplanes the RAF was still designing biplanes 
biplane bombers, blind, biplane fighters, biplane transports. And that was right across Europe as well. So the Germans were still, um, you know, sort of they had bi- biplanes in their frontline forces. The Italians did as well. Um, your maximum speed was about maybe 160 miles an hour, maybe a little bit more. Um, some of the more experimental aircraft that were, would come along later were just on the drawing board. So you were looking at monoplane aircraft, so you know, single wings, um, and they were a bit faster. But engine technology wasn't as developed as it would be in the Second World War. So you were still looking for Spitfire and a Hurricane. They came along later, the Measurement 109. They were the, you know, the, the faster aircraft that would um, start to come at, at the start of the, st- of the Second World War. So you were six years before that. So yeah, the biplane was still probably you know the major part of most air forces and most people couldn't see beyond that so you're looking at an aircraft made of canvas steel tubing um with a fairly rudimentary air, uh, engine which hadn't really changed much from the first world war and the speed's not much different either you're still looking at 160 maybe 200 miles an hour if you're lucky um so yeah they're not entirely kind of like you know sort of cutting edge technology but for them they were what about this particular crash then pointed to this being something else? Well, the, you know, going by wording, it just seems that they thought it was something completely different from the time. So, you know, I, I, we can't really get into the heads of the people who allegedly sort of, you know, centre around this story because a lot of it still has to be verified. But in terms of the legend that sprang up around this RS-33 uh, cabinet and, and, the air, and this vehicle that's supposed to be recovered, then it must have been or you know, suitably different that they thought it was something worth studying. You know, whether they still thought it was some kind of secret weapon for one of the European powers or whether it was, as one particular line in, in uh, Pinotti's um, his article that says, you know, they thought it was uh, extraterrestrial. Um, it, it's unclear, really. But whatever it was, according to the legend, it was sufficiently interesting that they basically took it away and took it to what they call the Saia Marchetti aviation plant. And Saia Marchetti, um, which actually means the seaplane company of Upper Italy, uh, that's what the Saia, uh, S-I-A-I stands for. They built seaplanes, as the name implies. They also ended up building um, three-engine transports and torpedo bombers during the Second World War. So if they did have their hands on something that was kind of revolutionary technology, then they didn't use it in terms of their own output um, for their aircraft types. Um, and if you think, you know, you've got some radical technology that you can maybe reverse engineer or maybe you can study to some great depth, then you'd think you'd probably end up incorporating it into maybe some designs that you come up with. But Sire uh, Machetti never did, as far as I'm aware, and maybe not, none of the other Italian um aircraft manufacturers from the kind of 30s into the 40s. So you're looking at Fiat, Reggiani, um, and a few others, Savoia um, as well. They didn't, you know, sort of come up with, you know, revolutionary disc-shaped and all this kind of, you know, kind of malarkey um, kind of machinery. Can you think, so we're, we're talking about potentially the first ever crash or recorded crash, well, I say recorded in quotation marks, obviously, mm. given what we're talking about, of a potentially, and I have to say this, especially with someone like yourself, Graham, potentially extraterrestrial vehicle, something mm. off-planet, non-human. What would a military of that time or any government of that time think? Because it's not like if that happened now, you've got 90 years worth of experience and knowledge of this could be from somewhere else. It could be that something else. We've seen the movies, we've read the books, this was a time before all that, wasn't it? So it was. something lands and it's otherworldly. It's a mystery aircraft. What what would even have been the procedure or the thinking behind, you know, why this was that? It's funny, isn't it? Because in the popular culture at the time, the, the pulp uh, science fiction magazines, which did exist in the 30s, so people were aware of, you know, sort of the potential for extraterrestrial life. I mean, you know, there was, you know, there'd been book, books about Martians, you know, H.G. Um, Wells, Edgar Rice Burroughs. The, the, you know, it wasn't a new concept that there was the potentially aliens out there. But in terms of the military, well, I mean, I'll skip forward 10 years from 1933 to the Second World War. And the same kind of thing, you know, in terms of mystery vehicles and, and, and strange lights being being seen in the skies over Europe and also in the Pacific. I mean, I've, I've written about the European side of things. And the military didn't really take it seriously in terms of, oh, these are extraterrestrials. That wasn't on their radar. They were still thinking it was some kind of German secret weapon. So really, um, if you look at if you go back 10 years, I'm having a sort of a hard time, like, unless it was something, comp- you know, like, 
inconvertible, uh, like uh, like bodies, you know, some I don't know what <laughs> three-headed, you know, grey um, alien or something like that. I'm just I'm being flippant, of course, but you know what I mean. If something radically different that I wasn't human was found in the wreckage of something, or or they captured something where there was some you know clearly inhuman. Uh, entity at the controls, then yes, okay, they might have thought, um, you know, this is something that's not of this earth. But if it was just some wreckage um, and there were no bodies, then I don't know. I think the military at the time would have thought it was some some other country because that was always what they thought. It was what they thought in World War Two. In actually, in actual fact, it was also what they thought in the late forties when you know you had the ghost rockets, when you had um, the things after Kent Arnold, the the thought that it was Russian technology, and um, so. That kind of thinking was quite pers- um, you know, persuasive um, and, per- and pervasive as well. That you know, it was an easy go-to for countries thinking, okay, the strange things in the sky, there must be somebody else's. Now, fast forward to 1944-45, where um, we're nearing the end of the war, Second mm. World War, and what I found fascinating was the Pope. Pope Pius the Twelfth was it? Is it twelfth? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, one of the popes, the Pope of the time, um, he tipped off the Americans as to this vehicle's existence. Apparently, that's what was said by David Grush. Take us to to what happened there, and obviously the Americans. Why why would the Pope be telling the Americans that there's a potential extraterrestrial vehicle? You see, this is this is where I start to think what's going on here. Um, I suspect, I mean, I, I can't prove it, but I think it seems like Grush is actually reporting things that he's either been told or read somewhere else. And it's not, it doesn't sound to me as though it's, he's got first-hand knowledge of this. Um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, Andy, but is that the case? I, I think he's reporting on stuff he's read or, or, or things have been told to him. Is, is that right? Yeah, as much as I've tried to keep up with the story, it, it seems to be, and I've certainly taken away from anything I've seen of David Grush's, as credible as he has been, he has very much framed it as he has read documentation, given his access to various um, programs and his classification, security classifications that he holds. Mm. Um, that's all been he has read documentation which states okay. X, Y, or Z. He's not seen videos or photographs. I may be wrong on that, but I yeah. don't think so. So let's go back to 1944. I can't answer your question about why the Pope would sort of tip off the Americans. The legend, we're going to go back to this legend again, and there's various, I think there's various versions of it. So I've heard, or I've read rather, the OSS, that was the, the forerunner for the CIA. So there's the Office of Strategic Studies. Um, they were like the American spies. You know, they operated out of Switzerland during World War II, uh, Alan Dulles, all this kind of stuff. So they were doing some rather, you know, sort of strange things. They learned their trade off the, off the Brits. Um, and one of the parts of the legend suggests that the OSS agents spirited whatever the thing it was away from Italy in 1944. Another version of the legend suggests that the uh, an American um, army detachment, um, one of the army divisions, um, came across it at the end of the, of the Second World War. So you're looking at when, end of April, beginning of May 1945, in terms of that part of Italy. So... There's, you know, depends on which bit you read and who you believe and who you believe. There's various versions. Pinotti, who was one of the the people who are all over this story and who have been responsible for um, getting um, some kind of expert to verify these telegrams that are, are circling these alleged telegrams, which are supposed to prove some of this ex- that this happened. Um, they link the kind of the people who are. Have been there's an anonymous informant who basically given them the information in the first place, and he came up with a list of names, I, I believe, as well. And then they've also in this article that Pinotti uh, wrote, this UFO files of Mussolini, he mentions, and this is where it falls down for me. He he mentions um, an Italian um, designer called Belluzzo. And if anybody knows about the Nazi flying disc um, myth, then he crops up in it. And he also, and Pinotti also mentions a Richard Mieser, who was a German designer, alleged German disc designer during the war. And if anybody's read um, UFOs Before Roswell, the book I wrote about the Foo Fighters and associated phenomenon during World War II, basically Mieser wasn't who he said he was. There's no proof to say he ever worked on disc projects. Hell, there's no proof to say the disc projects existed in the first place. Um, and all the stuff that Mitha has ever said about um, his credentials, and I use that word in air quotes, it's all, that's for, for one of the better phrase, bollocks. Um, so, you know, 
it, none of it makes any sense whatsoever and none of it can be verified. So if you're hanging your story on people who simply don't exist or whatever they've claimed doesn't exist either, because part of Pinotti's um, reasoning is that people like Mitha and some of the other German designers, alleged German designers, were named in CIA and, and, and sorry, US and German documents. Well, that's true to an extent, but it's only because there were translations of foreign newspapers that were these people claiming that they'd done this in the war and printed much later. So you're looking at the 1950s. That doesn't mean to say it's proof. It just means that they're, you know, somebody claiming they did something and a translation that appears in the FBI files or CIA files. So that's not proof. What's, you know, not nowhere near proof. Um, and some of the stuff that they've got in terms of the telegrams, there's, I'm not going to say that they're forgeries, but there have been people who have written rebuttals of this whole story. And, what they say is entirely credible that you know none of this stuff has actually been proven to be to be anywhere near kind of you know proper documentation. Um, so you've got to sort of take everything here with a pinch of salt. I feel it's a really good story at the end of the day, and it's very very kind of you know persuasive. It's quite endearing. You know, people who are interested in the subject are going to fall all over it because yeah, you know, nineteen thirty three. You know, yeah, something crashed in Italy, or it might have been sent to the states. You know, it ticks all the boxes and it pushes people but people's buttons. But you have to dig a bit deeper. Um, and also the this expert that they reckon they got to test the ink and the the paper of these telegrams and or. or some letter there's a handwritten letter as well which has got some drawings of some of these things that were seen in Italy in the 1930s um they allegedly they've been tested and been verified to be true in terms of from the time but the actual uh, as far as i'm aware and i might be wrong here but as far as i'm aware the um the kind of the the report into you know what kind of processes were used to determine this has never been circulated and actually the original documents have never been opened up for independent testing um but when people have asked, or that researchers have asked these two italian researchers for you know the actual documents so they can check them for themselves they've only ever been seen fo- uh, sent photocopies well you know photocopy is hell mj12 was photocopies you know put in an envelope yeah chucked under somebody's door you know you can't test them to see if they're right if they're you know the, the real thing or not um so there's a lot of ifs and buts around this story so i think at the end of the day you know grush has been given a story by somebody who may be well be a trusted source and the inf- where it's come from might be trusted in terms of source as well but the actual core of the story there's still a lot that really we need a lot more before we can actually say, yeah, that is something that's worth, you know, definitely saying this is part of the whole ufology. At the moment, it's a claim, not verifiable. The documentation is, I suppose, the word, um, I would use the word suspect to the point of, well, it's not being categorically sort of verified yet. But it's, it's still an interesting story nonetheless. And it's been around for a bit. Um, I think I was looking in an Italian magazine a bit earlier on this afternoon, and I'm sure that was from 2004. So you know this, uh, and these are in Italian. So you know you can what find sort of uh, what sort of magazine, Graham? It's an Italian UFO magazine. Oh, just um, checking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I haven't got the title to uh, with me in that. My Italian's rubbish anyway. Um, but there was two. Uh, p- two particular episodes, um, sort of issues. Um, there were there was I think number twenty seven and twenty nine of this particular magazine, um, and they were about and they were called the fascist UFO files. And one was a more of a kind of slanted towards the German discs, but the other, the second one was actually a rebuttal of effectively everything that was coming out, you know, of these two researchers about this particular case. Um, so, yeah. Um, and actually, the, the magazine is called Revista di Informazioni Ufologica. And it's um, August 2003. Sorry, it was the year before, 2003. So that was one of the magazines. And I think the other one was, that was issue 27. And then two months later, issue 29 had this particular um, article by another Italian researcher who just went to town on this whole story. And to me, what he's all the things he's throwing up are quite valid about how true this story might be. And it's not that he's putting holes in it. He just asks questions. And these questions can't be asked, answered at the moment. So I think it sheds a little bit of doubt on this particular story. I'm not trying to pour cold water over it. I mean, it's one of those things I would love to be true at the end of the day, you know. So, uh, there's a lot of stories 
throughout the ufology that I've loved to have been true, especially when I was much younger. It turns out a lot of them now are, are probably forgeries uh, or hoaxes. And, you know, if, if you've lived as long as I have now, you know, in my mid-50s, you get the point where some of the things that you heard 20, 30 years ago, you know, turn out not to be true. So I'm very wary nowadays when something new and exciting comes along, uh, I'm not going to go, yeah, yeah, that's great, that's great, that's great, you know, and, and, and put my whole kind of you know, reputation behind it. I'm just a little bit kind of bit wary nowadays and I wait to see, you know, what else comes along because sure as anything, you know, somebody's going to come along in a few months' time and come up with something else about this story, which is either going to cast doubt on it or is going to verify it. But I think until then, it's an interesting story, Andy, and I think really we should just leave it at that. And unless, you know, somebody's going to do some proper digging into it, because let's face it, RS-33, you would expect there might be an RS-34 or an RS-29. You know, surely the Italian government, if they're setting up kind of special cabinets to um, investigate strange goings on, there've probably been other kind of like things like this happening throughout the 30s and maybe in the 40s or 50s. Why isn't there another kind of similar organization? Why are they sending telegrams? You know, if it's some secret group that, you know, it's been buried away in the archives and nobody's been be able to see it for decades after the war, after the 30s, you know, why are they just sending like ordinary telegrams to each other saying about, you know, strange things crashing and all the rest of it? It doesn't make any sense. Um, and then, you know, if you're hanging the whole story about handwritten letters, albeit on kind of government-headed news, um, letter pa- um, letter-headed news, um, you know, notepaper, but anybody can, you know, the stacks of them around, you can get blank copies of those and you can, hell, you can probably do them on the internet. You know, it, it doesn't mean to say that they're actual documents. So I think there's a lot of stuff around this case, which from us, I mean, I am being a little bit skeptical here, but I'm just being real, you know, a bit of a, a you know, a, a re, trying to put a, a kind of bit of realism here. We don't want to get too excited until we have a bit more information because at the no. moment, what there is, isn't really enough. It's not categorical to actually yeah. suggest that this is true. I'd like to thank Liquid IV for sponsoring this episode. Folks, you've heard me bang on about my own health and fitness journey the last year or so and how it's true that by looking after yourself, you just feel better. Staying hydrated is key to having the energy to get through your daily routine feeling good. That's where Liquid IV is the category-winning hydration brand fueling your well-being and their hydration multiplier is the one product you may be missing in that daily routine. Eating and drinking healthy can sometimes be boring, but the range of flavours offered by Liquid IV takes care of that, with lemon and lime, pina colada and tropical punch among some of the best, though I'm particularly fond of the strawberry lemonade. Just one stick of Liquid IV in 16 ounces of water hydrates you two times faster and more efficiently than water alone, containing five essential vitamins, B3, B5, B6, B12 and vitamin C, with three times the electrolytes of premium sports drinks and its non gm GMO and gluten-free, dairy and soya-free too. Get 20% off when you go to liquidiv.com and use code THATUFO at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code THATUFO at liquidiv.com. Yeah, and it is that. We're, we're talking about something that happened 90 years ago, you mm. know, 90 years and two months ago now. Um, so even though it's new information or old old news being made new again you're the, the witnesses are dead the people oh, who yeah. were involved in it are long since passed away long long time ago um like you say evidence will have been destroyed even if say we're going to go with this had happened you then had a war over the the coming decade or so mm-hmm. then with the passage of time information old bits of paper get lost thrown away burned bombed whatever mm-hmm. may have happened um so it's always difficult to go back, like I've said many times, like with Roswell, and oh, yeah. dig up new aspects of a story because that's great. Here's here's a if a new telegram came out tomorrow and it was apparently from Mussolini talking about the bodies he had seen, that's fine. You can't go and speak to Mussolini. Not that many people would have wanted to, um, but you know that's you can't. It's so long ago, so it's going to remain a story. It was mentioned by Lou Elizondo a couple of years it ago was, yeah. on the Max Moskowitz podcast. That's very true. Um, he mentioned it then, but again, that's not to say that Lou never no, read the not. same documents as David Grush, for example, and maybe spoke to the same people who said, we have heard, 
And that that could be what happened. It might not be, but it could have been. We have heard there was a crash in Italy in 1933, and there's actually some documentation on it. Here are some telegrams, and maybe that's as far as it went. So that might even be all that people like Lou Elizondo, people like David Grush know or knew about it. What I would ask, though, Graham, is if the US... Um, and what I have something I should point out for people that haven't heard Graham before, obviously I've had the pleasure of Graham's company many times in coffee shops and whatnot. Even just one to one, Graham will very relu- be is very reluctant to discuss aliens or <laughs> ET <laughs> spacecraft. Too, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I have literally, to the point of frustration, pressed him before for answers like one to one, going, "Yeah, but." It could have been. It doesn't commit, folks. So he's he is genuinely being himself. This is what he's like in person as well. Um, but it's it's very fair. Um, but I want to ask Graham. So if this did, and I is it fair to say it looks like there was something recovered by Mussolini's government in 1933. Mm, I don't. You see, you're still yeah, skeptical. It, it could be an aircraft. Yeah. it's it's pretty vague. You know, so let's thing. So, so let's let's go with David Grush, Lula Zondo, and others haven't been fed a fast one here, okay? And yeah. there is something to this story. What I want to know is, and because it's still speculation anyway, how does it change the framing of what happened at Roswell in 1945, 47? Um, because if the US now had prior knowledge of these things may crash or we would now be left to believe that they had picked something up a couple of years before Roswell or parts of something. How does that change the Roswell story? Because at that point, the US is no longer as bumbling or scrambling around here going, oh, we don't know what this is and da da da, because there may have been more of an idea. Is that fair to say? It is. And let's say, well, let's go along that road. Let's say for argument's sake, something alien was recovered in 1933 and passed to the US in 44 or 45. Then, I guess, they would have an idea if something crashed at Roswell, what they were looking at. It might not be the same thing. So if they did get debris in 47, then, you know, potentially it could be from a different race or a different craft, and it might be nowhere near what they'd recovered in 33. So, you know, not just because, you know, object A crashed in 33 doesn't mean to say that, you know, object B that crashed in 47 is the same type or from the same species or from the same race, you know, yada, yada, yada. So, but it might be something that's still alien. Like, you know, let's go down that road. You know, so I'm speculating here. Uh, I have to say, this is not something I believe in necessarily, but this is just, you know, we'll take it as far as it goes. Now, if that's the case as well, then why the hell do they do Project Sign? Why do they do Project Grudge? Why do they do Project Blue Book? And you only look at all the kind of the documentation and you see all the kind of backwards and forwards from senior Air Force officers and intelligence people. Why are they all in the dark? And then I suppose that takes you to MJ-12. And if you believe in that, then does that become part of it? I'm still very, very kind of sceptical about MJ-12, as you well know, because we've discussed this, you know, it's some, not at length, but, you know, we've talked about it before uh, in private. Um, so I'm still not sure. But if you're going to make a story up, let's say, um, about stuff and either lead people down the garden path or sow enough kind of crap in the um, in the overall kind of you know pool so that people pick bits out of it and then throw it up as oh yeah this is part of the story and then you know some sometime in the future somebody goes do you know what i made that up and it just it's just like a you know like a house of cards it all falls to bits and everybody can just rubbish ufology then that would be the way to do it you would you you would make these things up and just put a bit here a bit there and make them sound really really genuine or very very you know sort of yeah, kind of. Oh, yeah, this sounds really true, and just sew it in bits of, in, in places where people will find it, push people towards it, and then go and then just sit back and watch happen and, and see what happens. So that's my skeptical head, if you like. Um, but yes, there's nothing to, to to stop people thinking. Well, yeah, you know, what if what if something did crash in '33? How does that change the overall narrative? And well, you know, there's various possibilities, and one is that yeah, the Americans did know well in advance of even the Second World War that there were, you know, for one of a better phrase, aliens like you know watching us, um, and for some reason their craft had crashed or landed, and and 
they'd got them in the end. So if anything else crashed afterwards, then they were well aware that, that these things existed. And this was just another something else to add to their collection. Um, and was it the same or was it something different? You know, And they would just build on that knowledge. And somewhere in the background, yes, okay, there's been some secret organization or organizations collecting, cataloging, researching, investigating, taking these bits, you know, these things apart, trying to reverse engineer them, you know, all the rest of it. All the stuff that's built up, you know, all these stories that are built up throughout the generations. Um, and of course, we're still trying to work out today how much of this is true. So you document extensively through your series of books and the two most recent books that we've not had you on to discuss that we'll, we'll touch on. Uh, Dawn of the Flying Saucers, Aerial UFO Encounters and Official Investigations, 1946-49, and more recently, Intercept and Identify, Aerial UFO Encounters, 1953-1954. to Yeah. You're, you're a, a researcher. You do a lot of work to put into these books and what these books are are a wonderful snapshot of a period in time that while we're getting further away from that period in time, it seems to become more and more relevant given, you know, people are saying, well, why are we only seeing these things more and more now? And it's all top secret US tech or Russian tech. Well, we're, we're going back, like you see here, 70, 80, 90 years. And these yeah. objects, these mystery aircraft, these UFOs, UAP, were being spotted and seen all throughout the skies. Hmm. So for you, and as someone who still remains very sceptical as to what this phenomenon may represent, if there indeed even is something, given you write about UFOs, Graham, for the love of God, um, <laughs> and have done in, in multiple books, yep. you know, on the balance of the evidence, these pilots that you're writing about and documenting their sightings, what they've seen, they're seeing something that isn't easily explainable. And yeah. there's a huge volume of this as well. Do you still, at this point in 2023, lean towards it could all be prosaic or is there no. an overwhelming body of something to say do you know what they're seeing something else here and you know what even if the the Mussolini story is just that and even if Roswell was a crashed weather balloon Graham wink wink okay what do you think some of these pilots were identifying that they just could not make out I think like most people you know, there is a quite a lot of sightings that people probably have a mistaken identity. And I'm sure a lot of people, you know, kind of like accept that. But it's the kind of small core of reports that simply can't be identified, which keeps this mystery alive. And it is something that, you know, all the stuff I've written about, um, I'm not writing about stuff that I think, oh, yeah, there's just some kind of prosaic answer for this. You know, don't get me wrong. Um, I do think there's something to this. Otherwise, I still wouldn't be um you know writing about it i would be interested in about it. i would be talking about it hell i wouldn't be going to roswell to put it you know, to, uh, to do a lecture on the foo fighters in, in a week's time so i do think there's something to it but as to what that is um it's not that i'm remain to be convinced it's just i don't think the, the kind of quality of the evidence is there yet and you know i, I think we haven't got we're past that kind of rubicon yet where we're going to get the general public you know at large to actually agree with everybody here to think look there's something you know worth investigating um, you know, as far as we go, uh, you know, you and, and, and myself and our European media colleagues and, and you know, the wider UFO Twitter and, and people beyond that who are interested in the subject. Yeah, you know, we, we accept that there's something to it and we're interested enough. And some people do yeah, think it's aliens. Some people think there might be some other kind of like reason, like time travelers for the future and, you know, ultra terrestrials and all the rest, all the things we've discussed, you know, discussed in the past. Whatever you, you know, your pet theory is or, or whether you don't have one like me, um, and you're just w waiting to find out what it is or, or trying to work it out. Um, we sort of all accept on some level that there's something really strange going out on out there and we're trying to get to the bottom of it. And that's why we remain interested. That's why I remain interested, you know, after 45 years of looking at this. But um, the, the quality of the evidence, I think I go back to that is, and that's what I use in my books. You know, I, I firmly believe in actually, you know, presenting evidence to suggest, yeah, there's something going on here. I'm not somebody who, to go back to something I've always talked about, is the books I used to re read in the 70s and 80s. It was people making, you know, oh, somebody saw a light in the sky. and Yeah, that was definitely the aliens from, you know, Zeta Reticuli. This kind of stuff, you know, that went on. And they would they have these leaps of kind of logic, leaps of faith from um, lights in the sky to aliens. 
and I can't do that because I can't prove that. Uh, whereas if I go into a, you know, the archives somewhere, whether it's the American or the British archives, and I pull out uh, an intelligence file from a pilot who was in, being interrogated by uh, an intelligence officer, and he's saying that he was chased by a red light or he saw a 200-foot-long torpedo object fly past his cockpit window, that's evidence of a sort. Uh, you know, it's not necessarily categorical proof that aliens are here, but it's certainly more you know, towards that direction. And it's certainly something that says, well, look, something definitely strange is going on. So that is, to me, you know, why that keeps me going, because it's stuff I can get a hold of. It's stuff I can see on a page. Whereas if it's, um, you know, some secondhand story about something in April 1933 that can't really be verified to any great extent, um, and the jury's still out on it. Um, I, I, actually, I would encourage people to read not only Pinotti's UFO, um, you know, files of Mussolini, uh, but also the the there is actually a translated copy of that Italian magazine article as well that's floating around. Um, if anybody wants to contact me, I'm, I'm sure I can send them a copy of it. Um, and it's worth reading that side of it as well, and then make your mind up from there. You know, um, but we definitely like most things in in most cases in this um, this field that we look at. We need more information because that's what we're sadly lacking. And, you know, you can have all the videos in the world, you can have all the kind of, you know, testimony um, of people seeing stuff and, and all the rest of it, but really, we need more. We really need more. I, I think the beauty of what your books provide is, and people like yourself who are authors, historians, and present a wonderful back catalogue for a, a new audience or a modern audience of things that happened, like you say, decades and almost mm. almost a century ago. We're going back now as, as time marches on for all of us. It's, it's a very quick answer to the, the questions now put forward that much of what is being seen is all modern tech because what you can present is, well, I'm not saying it's aliens, but what I am showing you is that these things go back 60, 70, 80 years mm-hmm. and pilots back then didn't even have the same language for it, did they? They didn't. A pilot going up now seeing some kind of disc shape or you know tic-tac probably has that thought of, Christ, could this be aliens in their head just because of what's happening? But back then, there was it wasn't really in the lexicon as much as you say there was talk of Martians and sci-fi stories. You know, we were a long way off of Star Trek and all that kind of good stuff. It's it's a wonderful way of saying look, but it's been happening for a long time. So that th- these weren't drones, these weren't you know the Nazi bell you know myths that, that happened also, around. Drones, drones didn't exist really to any great degree back in the thirties and forties. Drones were full size aircraft; they were radio controlled aircraft, um, and you know the, the Chinese didn't exist as an industrial nation back in the 30s and 40s. You know, they were mostly still a peasant, like a peasant agriculture country, you know, run by warlords to, until, the, until the communists and the nationalists started having a, a civil war. Um, and the Russians, you know, were still fairly backward in terms of their industrial base. They were still trying to, you know, sort of get their, their country together after the revolution. And it was only really when the Second World War came along that they started, like, you know, pushing out loads of tanks and aircraft and stuff like that. So they... You know, to try and suggest that they were going to develop some secret technology back in the 30s, or the Chinese words, just for the birds. And even in the 40s as well, that was never a grower. Um, if anybody, yeah, okay, the Germans might have, but once I've, you know, I've looked at all that kind of stuff, and I go through the reasoning why that can't be true in UFOs before Roswell, and other people have done that as well, of course. Um, and even in the 50s, the Russians didn't have the technology, and the Chinese certainly didn't, because they were still... Uh, using cast-off um, technology from the from the Russians in terms of jet fighters and missiles, so you can't suggest that these things were Chinese or Russian drones or you know or mystery aircraft back then either, because they simply don't fit you know the kind of the the, te- the, the testimony as to what was being seen and the stuff that ends up in the intelligence reports. Now those lines kind of you know where you draw the lines between what's reported and what the technology was, those are getting closer together as we get further you know, on in history, so uh, in, in the future rather. So nowadays, it's much more difficult to try and segregate, um, you know, sort of drones from strange things flying around the sky because drone technology is much more sophisticated nowadays. But back then, the 40, you know, 30s, 40s and 50s, no way, no way at all. Well, now the issue is uh, sentient plasma beings floating about in the sky <laughs> that we can't replicate. So, yeah, technology marches <laughs> on, doesn't it? Um, and I want to skip forward to modern time, Graham, and get your get your take on David Grush. Um, it's been a bit of a whirlwind couple of weeks. Yeah. And I wonder what someone like yourself, who is very much, and regardless what how Graham 
sounds in some of his takes. Graham's a fan of the UFO topic, but just very data driven. And I wonder how you've what your take is on David Grush sitting in front of the world's media and talking about what he's talking about. I think, first of all, you can obviously say he's a very brave man for doing so. Uh, I'm not sure if I was in his position, I would want to put my, my head above the parapet and do what he's done. You know, but people like him and, and Lou Elizondo, you know, all credit to them for coming forward. Um, it then just comes down to, I guess, the kind of, you know, the veracity and, the, and the, you know, what kind of information he's coming up with. So, you know, we've discussed already, is it just somebody kind of saying things that he's heard um, and the reports he's read? Because that doesn't really get as much further forward. It's, in a way, it does, because it's somebody who has impeccable credentials. Well, um, let, me just, let me ask you, and you've, you've sort of answered your own question there that I'm going to come <laughs> back on, Graham, but, but it does get us further forward because... What it doesn't get forward, really, is the 0.1% of us in the UFO community posting on Twitter, posting on Facebook who, oh, this is all old news or this is great, this is disclosure, because none of that is is necessarily correct, right? But to the 99.9% of folks out there who unfortunately don't listen to this podcast or buy your books or scroll (laughs) through UFO Twitter all day or watch documentaries on YouTube and all all that good stuff, right? Or follow all that wonderful content out there made by by various different people. Hmm. Most folks are just going about living their daily lives, not really giving a second thought to the UFO topic outside of, oh yeah, I've heard about Roswell and maybe there's something in the sky that's not as, maybe not. That's it. That's as far as it goes. So when someone like David Grush, with the credentials he has, which at mm. least that has all been verified, says what he says, that's a huge audience and that's a big platform that he's managed to reach very quickly. So oh, yeah. it, it might be he's saying things we've heard before or things that can't be proven, but does it get a whole lot more eyes and ears on this topic? And does that help apply more pressure, particularly in the United States? Anecdotal evidence from things that, you know, people have heard and writing about this have said that, you know, people they know uh, around the water cooler or various other places have said, oh yeah, did you see this last night about this guy who's talking about UFOs? So in a, in a you know, in, in certain sense, it has gained some traction, but as to whether it's, you know, it, it, it's got legs, then that's a different question altogether because everything seems to have like now talking in this country is talking about Partygate or to, in America, they're talking about the submarine. So, you know, the news cycle has moved to other things and everything, and this has all been forgotten. And this is only what a week or two afterwards. That so, Graham, that you, was my you, next question, and I was going to say, ask, yeah. If you ask the man in the street, you know, the, the next person you see walking down the, the high street, what about this? They might well remember the story, but chances are it'll be forgotten in all the noise about you know what's happened in the last. In fact, two seconds. My wife is just sitting here, and I'm going to go and ask her, Joe. <laughs> if you know, there was somebody came out for an intelligence officer of the week asking, saying, "I have got these stories about UFOs. What do you think about that?" Joe, my my wife wouldn't have an opinion beyond it's interesting. (laughs) You know, so and 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 my wife. Yeah, yeah. She's just saying it's not in the news at the moment. Well, you'd expect it would be if it was something that was kind of earth shattering and was going to push the conversation forward. It would be something that would be, you know, they would pick up on it again. There would be follow ups, and that's what you would get with a normal story that had. You know, some kind of like um, some you know sort of meat to it, some kind of you know some some substance to it. Whereas it's occupied a new cycle on a on a very fairly small channel um, to start with, you know, for a few hours, and then it's been picked up via some other channels. But beyond that, it hasn't really gone anywhere. So, yeah, okay, it's gone into a few newspapers, but that's as far as it went. You know, it hasn't had the legs as like when Lou Elizondo's story came out. That got much more. I'd like to thank Wongo Puzzles for sponsoring this episode. My house is filled with all sorts of jigsaws, shape games and puzzles. Definitely a favourite of the family. A very welcome addition to those has been Wongo Puzzles. If you're looking to try something new and exciting, then pick up a custom-designed, unique, handcrafted puzzle from Wongo Puzzles. It's the perfect balance of good fun and a challenge. Even the folks in Congress who couldn't work VLC media player during live UFO hearings would be able to give it a go. 
They are 100% wooden puzzles. They will last forever. Each piece is hand-drawn, so no two pieces are the same and you'll discover some fun, whimsy pieces as you work through it. They come in a custom wooden box, which is perfect for storage and gifting. Personally, I'm a big fan of the Snow Globe puzzle. Gives you that all-year-round festive feeling, and you'll see what I mean if you pick that one up. What are you waiting for? Go to wongopuzzles.com and pick up your puzzle today and be sure to use the promo code THATUFO to get 10% off your order. This is the most fun you've had with a puzzle guaranteed or your money back. Go to wongopuzzles.com and use the code THATUFO to get 10% off your order and get puzzling right now. Yeah, and like you say, that that came and went out of sight, out of mind. It reminds me of the, the Generation game, you know, when they had the the conveyor belt of all the prizes yep. going Come along. Enjoy. And once it's once it's gone and off the screen, does it does it really exist anymore? And I think again, going back to the minority of us with an interest in this topic, people listening to this or watching this right now, then then yes, it's still fresh in your mind. But like you say, right now that that Titanic news, the submarine for a snapshot for people listening to this in the future, you know, as we speak, where the submarine that went down to with some tourists to see the Titanic and um, they're running out of air. They've literally got hours left and the rescue missions and it's kind of final moments. Yep. If, if it indeed becomes a rescue and a salvage mission, we don't know. And in the UK, it never even touched the sides as the expression goes in terms of this becoming a big story, a couple of articles here and there and the odd quote on the radio is as far as it got. And I think this is something that a lot of the UFO community have to bear in mind that, that here's further evidence that these stories do come and go and as big as you think they are yeah they they can go away and that's why i'm always still a little bit skeptical myself that we've gone too far this time this story can't go away there's no putting the toothpaste back in the tube i i don't necessarily think that's completely true either let me say though that and i don't want to sound negative but that's why it's important that people like yourself write books or people like Ross Coulthard break these stories. Jeremy Corbell, George Knapp, whatever you think of Jeremy, he's putting stories out there. Joe Rogan picks up on these and the big news networks talk about it when they do. That I've always said from the beginning with David Grush, the the meat from this story will be what happens down the line mm. and the what happens off the yeah. back of him coming out. And that might be happening in the background right now as we speak. Sorry to interrupt, but that no, was No, just... it's fine. Sorry, I was interrupting you. Um, if he'd come out with something that was brand new, or he, I've got some documents, or I have first-hand knowledge of this, that would have been different. That would have been, you know, that would have generated more headlines. It would have been something that the news networks could have actually questioned him about. But if it's somebody come along saying, you know, I've read some stories, I've had people talk to me about this, that doesn't go anywhere in terms of a news story. It's not something you can much you can push forward. He has said he's given documents to Congress. So in the background, it sounds like he's found the treasure. Has found the treasure map, and he's given it to the folks who can go and find the treasure. I hope they're not kind of things that are already available. You know, the stuff that we've already seen, which you know doesn't have it, doesn't take it anywhere. If they are something that's completely new, then that's different. But obviously, we don't know what those are yet. So that's a you know we'll park that for the time being. But um, in terms of you know, other people coming out of the woodwork, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not say, suggesting they shouldn't, and I'm not trying to pull cold water over him coming forward either. Like I say, you know, he's very brave for doing so, and I think other people should, because once more people do, then you have that kind of snowball effect. And sooner or later, somebody will come out with some earth-shattering information, if that's the case, and if that's the direction to travel. So, yeah, you know, the, I'm all for it, and I'm all for the George Knapps and the, and the Jeremy Corbell and the Ross Coulthards of this world coming out with these people and giving them a platform to discuss this, you know, because that's what we've always been wanting. You know, right through the, the 2000s and the 2010s, you know, we'll have this kind of, you know, there was this doldrums in terms of nobody coming forward. And then when you get to 2017, it was like somebody had turned a tap on, you know, and, and now I think we're spoilt almost, you know, and it's just, well, when's the next person coming out? You know, so, you know, we might be victims of our own kind of success in a, in a way. Um, and we're taking for granted that people are coming forward, whereas really, it should be a case of yeah, but then we need kind of some kind of meat to this as well when when they do come forward, rather than somebody just saying, well, you know, I've read some reports, um, people have told me some things, um, you know, because hell, there's loads, lots of people like you know us who people come to occasionally say, do you know what? I know this. Somebody's told me this, and you have yeah. to, you know, because you you've had people come to you, but you know, lots of people from and just anonymous people 
you know, <laughs> send you stuff, don't they? Or random people send you things saying, you know, I know, I know what's going on. But that's not really news, is it? I've got um, pilots to get back to this week who have been in touch and they'll be listening to this just now because they, they tell me to listen all the time. So hello, and that's why they reached out. Um, so I will be getting back to a few folks this week um, on your story. So I do appreciate that. But yeah, Graham, you're right. The way I see the UFO topic right now in relation to the mainstream media news cycle is we're the noisy neighbours having a kind of small party just along the street. And now and again, you can hear us over your own, your own, you know, your own life that's going on. And you open the window and you, you say to your kind of family, oh, God, I wish they would quiet down a little bit. Maybe even now and again, you open the window, a crack and shout, going to shut up down there. But we want to get to the point where they have to confront that story head on. And that's not just, like you say, a short run in the US mainstream news that, I think for me, when it hits Sky News and the BBC and mainstream media outlets in the UK at the six o'clock, the nine o'clock time slots with leading stories, no X-Files music, none of that, that's for me when the story really will have gone truly mainstream. And actually, when they start doing their own reporting into it, rather than just kind of parroting what's been on a US network. Because when Lou Elizondo came out um, you know, when, in 2017, and the BBC did follow up on him, and also when they did the 60 Minutes story. And there were some follow-up kind of stories on the BBC. But there was no investigation. You know, they weren't doing an investigation. They were just talking to the, you know, the various people. Um, and there was no kind of depth to the the interviews at all. Yeah. It was almost like the the, the people who were doing the interviews didn't really know what they were talk, what they were sort of discussing. Um, so you, know, you could tell that from the line of questioning. Um, when you see the kind of political, you know, sort of um, current affairs shows in this country, whether on the radio or the TV, the investigations they do into various scandals and, and you know political stories, they were quite in depth. And, you know, and they'll basically, you know, just dig and dig and dig. They'll talk to a whole lot of people. They'll do, you know, they'll look at documents, all the rest of it, to try and get to the heart of the story. Until they start doing that, then that's when you're going to get, you know, uh, the movement in this country, at least. Until we get there, these are just kind of here today, gone tomorrow stories, as we are already know that's the case, because something else comes along in the news cycle and they get pushed to the back of the queue. Um, whereas if it was something that you know just wouldn't go away because it had a lot more substance to it, and it was something, yeah, you know, there's definitely something to this, and we found this article, we found this this old file, you know, this person's come forward and he's got you know these impeccable credentials and he was at the heart of it, all this kind of stuff, and they can build this picture up. Then yes, you would get a story that would actually just have legs and it would just build and build and build and it would never go away. But we're not there yet. No, and you can see some of these interviewers aren't comfortable with the no, conversation and the topic, and they end up going going wildly off the beaten track with their or they just or they make a joke of it, which is the yeah. kind of self defense mechanism when they're not comfortable. So that's when you get the X Files music. That's when you get the kind of jokey references yeah. to aliens. Um, you know, that's that's where all that comes from. Or, or a question that's nothing to do with it. And on that, Graham, I want to ask you: um, What is your favorite flavor milkshake? And what? Yeah, <laughs> strawberry. Um, that's the one that the, <laughs> the, the that the EBE was supposed to like, wasn't it? That was the the the, the answer they gave at the end of it when they were talking about that alien that had come and. Um, Custody, or was that ice cream? No, it was ice cream, wasn't it? They said, Oh, you like strawberry ice cream. And that was the, there was some story from years ago where they had, allegedly they had an alien in custody. And there was a whole load of questioning. And then the last question was, you know, oh, yeah, yeah he likes, he, uh, it likes strawberry flavored ice cream. And that was the kind of, yeah, we're just going to rubbish the whole thing. Sounds like one of Stephen Greer's parties there. Um, <laughs> so, so, um, on that note, a couple of questions from listeners to finish off, Graham. Um, uh, Keith Taylor asks, what information is known about unidentified submerged objects during World War II? And would Graham consider writing about this subject? And he adds, 70% of the world's surface is covered with water, yet the general focus is on air or land-based events. There are stories that do um, cover USOs from World War II, but there aren't many of them. Um, so I guess it would be a question of going through various naval records to find out whether there are any more. Um, and it would be probably quite difficult. Um, I'm not versed on naval records at all, so that would be something I would have to get stuck into. I've got my time taken up with the aerial side of things, so I'm not entirely sure a book would be on the cards uh, about World War II. But there's definitely a book to be written about USOs afterwards. I mean, it's been done already. There, there are, you know, Invisible Residents was, um, by um, uh, Ivan Sanderson. Uh, he, he wrote a book about... Um, but that kind of thing. So I think you know, if anybody wants to read something about the, that kind of stuff, the post-war, yeah, that's the one to look at. 
given that answer, Graham will have a four-volume series out <laughs> this Christmas. Um, um, but you no, Graham, is it, too well, Mr. I do. But is it fair to say that when it comes to USOs, and I'm fascinated by it as well, there's some really obvious reasons that, and God, it's very timely given the, the Titanic exploration sub that's, that's having difficulties, unfortunately, that it's such a big area, the visibility is far less than seeing something a couple of miles or a hundred miles away uh, on an aircraft that you you can't really see too far ahead of you at all underwater. There's not many windows. You're not really looking out anyway. And the technology, especially going back then, was nowhere near the capabilities of what the aircraft were, which still pale in comparison to today as well. And I think that was something that I'm sure for the, I'm sure it was when I spoke to Luella Zondo, I asked about underwater sightings and Lou mentioned that, the the speeds mm. are again just limitations of the the equipment that something being tracked at two thousand miles an hour isn't that the object was actually going two thousand miles an hour it was potentially going faster the issue being that the kind of speedometer for lack of a better term on the tracking is calibrated to a certain speed because you don't well, expect to have missiles going that fast for it example. wasn't that something to do with the Nimitz encounters when they were talking about the radar when they were coming from eighty thousand feet down yeah that was the that and was the ceiling was of the, the radar yeah limit of the radar that could have been coming yeah. from much higher up so yeah you're talking yeah you're right the limitations of, of um your detection equipment don't mean that that's the end of the story that um, yeah, so really interesting one. I would love to see and hear more on USOs as well. So, Keith, um, if Me anyone too, does I want to say... I don't think I'm the person to write it somehow. Um, I'm, I'm more the aviation side of things. So, yeah, I'll leave that as somebody who's a bit more capable. Somebody more interested in the naval side of things would be able to do a book like that much more justice, I think. Someone a little more wet behind the ears, shall we say. <laughs> just, or just um, wet. <laughs> yeah. Um, question from Peter Earnshaw. For you, Graham, what has changed in the past 80 years or so in terms of object form, formation, frequency, size, behaviour? Just, I suppose, the general reporting of these objects. For me, I think one thing I noticed from your books, Graham, to now is the, the language changes and how we've got more identifiers for these things? I think that's the thing that's changed, the, the language. I don't think the actual things themselves in terms of you know the range of shapes, sizes and colours and all the rest of it, I don't think that's actually changed. Um, you know, People say you know, Tic Tacs nowadays, well, you know, they were called cigar-shaped objects in the 60s and 70s. Um, you had torpedoes during, seen during World War II. You, know, you had mystery airships in the, in the 1890s. I mean, they might all be the same thing. There might be something completely different, of course. So I think the you know how you describe things things and and all that all the language has changed as you say but i think the you know the overall kind of stuff that's being reported and seen i'm not entirely sure that all any of that's changed Uh, but i don't think it has that's fair Uh, xander just said he looked forward to you being on loved reading your world war ii themed books and expects you'll try and get graham to or me i would try and get you to speculate on the nature of the phenomenon Uh, which we've done a little bit earlier yes even even the bribery of a coffee he's bribed me with the venti macchiato caramel macchiatos and and everything else from starbucks but it it doesn't work everything (laughs) in between and um valise has a question and while this isn't necessarily the subject of your books graham this is something i know we have talked about privately so i'm going to sort of paraphrase the question here were there any reports of those times of any more uh was it with ce3 close encounters oh yeah did any pilots report yeah um because the question actually asked was were there any messages that experiences have had that have changed over time nuclear environmental themes etc so anything around from your books that pilots maybe reported having those sort of messages yeah in terms of like seeing beings as far as i'm aware in terms of the books i've written about the pilot and aircrew encounters from the sort of late 40s and early 50s there are no real accounts of beings being on board these things they're seeing however if you go back to the second world war there are at least well certainly one account from poland in july 43 of uh, somebody who came across a crashed or a, a temporarily downed craft in the, in the sand dunes on the Baltic with a, with a pilot, um, an aviatrix. And there are other stories about kind of things which are landed, um, but not in terms of beings, but certainly landed craft at least. So, yeah, you know, there are really stories about CE3, um, but as to how true they are or how they fit into all the rest of it, I, I, you know, I can't tell you, I'm afraid. I just... <sighs> I try and not go there because, you know, you could be on forever trying to theorize and I just don't have a, enough information to be able to come up with any kind of plausible 
plausible kind of explanation, I'm afraid. So I'm sorry, I'm, you know, I'm probably not maybe going as far as some as your questioner wants to. But yeah, there were definitely stories from World War Two about, you know, sort of beings, let's put it that way. And just to finish off, Graham, something you mentioned earlier. Thanks for the questions, folks, by the way. Um, and as I bake here, even with the fan on in this shed, I want to finish <laughs> off just asking about the, the Roswell event you're attending, Graham, because as oh, we yeah. record this, it's scheduled for around next week. Is that right? Do you want it to is. give a little bit of information on it and how folks could either attend uh, oh, yeah, virtually yeah. or so, in person? Roswell, New Mexico, and it's the um, June the 30th and the 1st and 2nd of July. So, yeah, um, Vinny uh, from the Disclosure Project and myself um, and Dan from uh, from our our neck of the woods, um, we're all going to be in Roswell and um, we're, we're presenting various um, sort of lectures at this three-day event. So Vinny and Dan are doing a presentation about the, um, the stuff they saw in Colombia, uh, both earlier this year and last year. And I am doing a presentation on the Foo Fighters. So I've been kindly invited by the good folks at the Roswell Daily Record who are sponsoring and organizing this event to, uh, to go in there and, and, and do a presentation. So I'm, I'm thrilled to bits, basically. Um, I wasn't invited, folks, because the translator from Scottish to English would have been far too much for these events. So, yeah, um, so I won't be there. But, yeah, um, I will put the link for tickets for that in the description as well. And if you're out there, say hello to Graham, Dan and Vinny if you get a chance to. They are, they are all nice in their own way. We definitely don't bite. So come and say hello. Not hard anyway. Graham, thank you very much for your time. You're and uh, let me just actually one more question. Any more books in the pipeline? Oh yeah, there's definitely always books. I'm always writing, so I've got um I'm halfway through the 55 to 56 aerial sightings book. I haven't got a title yet, so if anybody wants to suggest one, then I'm all, I'm all ears. I can't give you any money for doing it, but I'm you know I'm open to suggestions. Maybe so, maybe you'll give away a give away a copy of yeah, the new book could, yeah, for that, free to the person idea. who suggests the name. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's that's a good idea. And the other one I'm doing is um. A follow-up to the Foo Fighters book that I wrote. So, because I found more stuff in the archives, so there's many more reports. Um, if you look through the RAF Squadron records of, of this, that, and the other that happened, they're just I got to four, 550 pages in the first book, and I thought, well, I can't write any more. You know, otherwise this thing's going to be a telephone directory. So, um, there's definitely more, and there's a lot more squadrons I haven't looked at their records yet. Uh, I'm actually going to be at the National Archives in London next week before I fly out to the US. So, and also on the way back as well, I've got another day scheduled. So, yeah, I, I need to, to look at some stuff. So, yeah, um, there's, I'm, I'm busy, definitely busy. Well, Graham, thank you as always for your time, mate. It looks lovely there. I'll let you get off and enjoy the rest of the weather. And folks, make sure you pick up uh, those new books from Graham, his original series, which we've talked about on the podcast, and Dawn of the Flying Saucers, which cover 1946 to 1949, and more recently, Intercept and Identify, which covers aerial UFO encounters from 53 to 54. Graham, always a pleasure. You're welcome, Andy. Again, thanks very much for the invitation. I'll speak to you soon. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access the shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer, a little baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of Fuck. The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I'd like to thank Blendjet for sponsoring this episode. You know I am already a huge fan of the Blendjet too. It's a brilliant bit of kit and many of you have picked one up using my promo code, so thanks. I am delighted to let you know it's just got even better. The new Orbiter drinking lid truly puts the Blendjet 2 into the atmosphere ahead of its competition. 
It's leak-proof, has a larger opening for thick smoothies with room for a straw, and it's engineered to keep spills at bay. I'm surprised Bob Lazar didn't talk about seeing this tech in the halls at S4. It's easy to use, so it can be operated one-handed, ideal for walking around, camping under the stars, or drinking on the treadmill. What are you waiting for? Go to blendjet.com and grab yours today. Don't forget to add the Orbiter lid, and be sure to use the promo code THATUFO12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power and innovation of the Blendjet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the Blendjet 2 portable blender. Go to blendjet.com and use the code THATUFO12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. 